Hello, this is John Renaud, and you're listening to the Mobile Radio Carnival via the CEF.world. Check us out, Uncommon Genius for the Common Types. This is Ed Donnelly, and I'm on the Mobile Radio Carnival. Absolutely, man, and glad to have you. Good to see you. I'm down in your studio, which is freaking amazing. It's the Barber Basement Recording Studio, if I got that right. Yep. Fantastic. I've known Ed for a while. Ed has produced some of my material and done a fantastic job of it. I'm so glad to sit here and talk to you. We've already talked ourselves out, though. I know. We made the, the podcast, uh, you know, the faux pas of talking for half an hour before we even pushed record. We did. So all the good stuff's gone. But we're going to talk a little about Detroit, because Ed is from Detroit. He played in Detroit, if I if I have the story correct. What what were your bands in Detroit? What was your experience so, in Detroit? So, uh, um, you know, our friend Mike Medill and I, I, I lived in Detroit just for, I, I lived up in the area three or four times throughout my life. Uh, my dad worked for DuPont, so he was involved in the automotive finishes, right. not to the, directly in the auto industry. And after high school, um, he, my folks moved up there, and I came up for a summer and stayed. And that's where I started playing in bands up there. And this was like, you know, fresh out of high school bands. We were right. green, yeah, but we were having a really good time. What um, kind of music? You know, we were doing a lot of, it was a lot of covers, yeah. um, but it was a mix of it was a really eclectic mix because we had, it's kind of like Michigan music. So we would do, you know, an Otis Redding cover. Oh, nice. Followed by, you know, The Damned. Or yeah, <laughs> yeah, just, yeah. You know, you had the, the MC5 or the, you know, went from punk rock to soul to even, even because they let me sing once in a while, even a little country. Nice. Um, so it was, it was, you know, 18, 19 year old kids who were just hungry to play music. Yeah. Um, and... <clears throat> that was you know me stepping in there finding like a group of like-minded people that yeah. just that loved all those different kinds of music was really great and is that where you met mike when yeah. you were playing we around were playing, playing in a band together yeah. um we we had a mutual friend he invited me over for you know hey let's have, let's jam i've got this band and that was it we were off to the races um and you guys being multi talented on instruments what were your instruments at the time he and i were both playing guitar gotcha and and i think only guitar at that time um and then someone got stuck playing bass in the band because someone had to play bass is that how the story that's usually how it goes right (laughs) we actually kevin leeser was on bass and he was actually a really talented bass player um he wasn't just the guy who couldn't handle the extra two strings like he was he was actually a bassist, not yeah, yeah. a failed guitar player, <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is yeah. common. Or yeah. a po- he wasn't appointed to the right, bass. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that, and the other really um, great thing is that, you know, those, it wasn't just kids having fun playing rock and roll. There were right. lifelong friendships that have lasted, and we're still making music together. Yeah, you're lot. producing with Mike. Yeah, and he's still playing with some of those same guys. Yeah. They just they just got signed to a record deal. Yeah, that's um, cool. And put out sick jokes. They put out this... Uh, very sort of, you know, modern industrial thing. But it's a, a lot of those guys that we were playing with back then are working with him now still. So yeah. it's great that that music leads you to those relationships and friendships. Well, and in your case, it's it's been a whole career. What Do you remember any venues that you played in back in the day? No. It was, it was because it was teenage rock and roll stuff. It was backyard parties gotcha. and anywhere, like all any... 
if there was an all ages venue you could get into, yeah. you went and played no matter what, you know. Um, well, in Detroit, that was a real deal, man. I mean, I think I, I played my fair share of parties and you're playing underneath a back awning or whatever. Totally. Um, that's how much Detroit music was, you know, it was just raw and you're just out as a savage playing your vibe. <laughs> yeah. And, and <clears throat> so after a couple of years, I moved out here to Los Angeles and those guys kept going and right. they played all the usual St. Andrews and all the, nice. the, all the usual clubs that you would expect somebody in Detroit to be playing. Yeah. Uh, the Blind Pig in Ann Arbor and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and the, that, they kind of turned into a band called Hal, who was there for a while. And there was a, there was a cool little early 90s scene. Um, Kalen Bliss and Battery Acid. There was some really neat stuff coming out of Detroit then. And that was kind of prior to the whole Jack White, Detroit oh, Cobras you. thing. Right, you know, sure. Which was 10 or 15 years later. Yeah. Um, so it was neat to be you know, out here hearing about this sort of underground scene happening in Detroit with my friends. You know, you said something that's really interesting and it strikes me uh, about Detroit. You were talking about how the music you were playing was pretty varied. Yeah. And it, it and you attributed it to kind of being a Detroit thing. I, I kind of agree with that. Having finally gone to other places in my life, I, I think that Detroit had a really broad um, sense of what you could, you know, like play and be accepted it was just, it, you know what I mean? It had like four rock radio stations at the time I was there, which right. most other cities only had two. And you would hear Rolling Stones mixed in with Sly and the Family Stone or some Elton John. And you're like, your brain's going, well, I don't know if Elton John's rock and roll, but it still sounded cool. And we all kind of liked it, I think. Was that your experience? Yeah. It, like, like I said, stepping into like this new set of friends and, and, and players that I'm hanging out with and the fact that we could have conversations about the, the session players at Motown yeah. and then talk about, you know, this ridiculous guitar histrionics that Steve I was doing yeah. and then talk about, you know, the, the recording studio where Miles Davis cut kind of blue all in the same conversation with the same people. Yeah. As opposed to my previous experience was if you were a country player, you knew country music and that was kind of it. Yeah. Or rock or, you know, you were just kind of in your silo and, and, and now as I've gotten older too, I've found that, the the Michigan experience is a lot more of how great players think and listen anyway. That they're makes listening, sense. They're yeah. listening to everything, yeah. you know, and they know everything. And you, you can sit on the bus with with a country band and they're still, they know all those classic rock songs. Yeah. You know, they grew up on Zeppelin. They know all that stuff. Uh, you know, what you play isn't necessarily what you listen to. Exactly. Um, and, and that makes you a better player. Period. Well, I think too, with if you even just take country, hell, there was a whole period of time where country sounded more like rock and roll than rock and roll sounded like, in my opinion. It still kind of does, yeah. except it's gotten into what we were just listening to before. There's all of a sudden there's this weird hip hop influence, yeah. too. Um, I got to admit, I was a little creeped out. I, I, I'd go and get my hair cut from this lady who would have young country on all of her television sets in the, in the, in the <laughs> salon that she was uh, working. And I was a little freaked out when. I heard the first like auto-tuned country song. I'm like, you know, there's something perverse about this. Yet at the same time, in hindsight, I can say, well, it's just as relevant as anything else. It's just some guys with that format playing around with different things. Yeah, and if you if you go back and you listen to like the Nashville sound, a lot of it sounds like the pop music of the time. Yeah, you know, if you listen to if you listen to K Earth or the oldie station. You hear what was going on in Motown or what was going on in Philadelphia, and then 
hear what's coming from Nashville, but there's a fiddle on top of it. Yeah. It's not so different from what is going on in Nashville right now as the popular trends seep in. And as long as you can sell records with it, they're going to do it. Indeed. You know? Yeah, it's really cool. So did you consider yourself primarily a country player back in the day or were you? No. Uh, you know, I, I was kind of a punk rock kid. Um, That's what I thought, man. I, I, I saw that picture of you with the long hair and I thought, I, I actually thought for a while maybe you were even a metalhead. No, I wasn't. I became a metalhead in my 30s. Oh, there you go. <laughs> um, <laughs> a little reverse engineering going on there. Yeah, well, I, I, um, I really liked the do-it-yourself like philosophy of what punk and, and, you know, at that time they call it college music or, right. you know, there was, it wasn't just straight hardcore. It was kind of any, anything that wasn't mainstream kind of fell under that umbrella in yeah, a way. I, I had the same thing happen to my form of music at the time too. Yeah. And, and so I, but I really liked, the, you know, we were putting out our own magazines that we were stapling together at Kinko's nice. and we were making our own records. When I was 15, I made my first album and that opened my eyes with a bunch of guys from high school. Right. And that opened my eyes to like, Oh, we can do this, you know? Um, and so that was sort of the approach for till now, you know, Hey, let's just make music. Let's make art. Yeah. Um, and we don't need to wait. We don't need permission and we don't need money. Yeah. We can just make art. And that was really even, even more than the music itself. It was that sort of entrepreneurial Mm -hmm. approach that really drew me to that stuff. But, before, in between living in Michigan a couple of times, I lived in Iowa when I was a kid. Oh my gosh, that's a big jump. Well, my mom always says it was her first uh, first foreign assignment. Oh. <laughs> first third world assignment. <laughs> there you go. Sorry, Iowa. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. It's I, not, I, it's, I'm just saying there's a distinct difference, I think, in the uh, cultures. Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, we lived on a dirt road and... Um, there's corn all around us. <laughs> Cows probably somewhere. But that's the first time I heard a steel guitar. Yeah. And I remember, I was seven, eight years old, um, and and the radio was on, and I heard a steel guitar, and I, I can remember it absolutely like it happened yesterday, thinking, what is that sound? Yeah, it's a beautiful sound. What? Yeah, like it, it grabbed me. Yeah. Um, so I spent that time when we lived in Iowa soaking up more country music than I realized right until I look back um we we put we set up a turntable at the house just recently pulled out all the old records first record I ever owned was Rhinestone Cowboy by Glenn Campbell oh so well Glenn Campbell's an amazing player so yeah wrong with that and and you know okay you could say that that's kind of a corny song um it's, it's a kind of a corny album uh compared to you know, I'm going by the time I get to Arizona or Wichita County Lineman, yeah. or, you know, like his classic Jimmy Webb stuff. But that's where it started. Yes. And the second record I ever owned was Kiss Destroyer. That's with a pretty big jump. Detroit Rock City <laughs> exactly, on it. Exactly, right? man. Um, and that kind of that explains everything, I think. Yeah. I th- it's, it's funny because, um, you know, I get that too, where it's like my tastes seem to be, I guess people will call it eclectic. I would say, you know, I'd interrupt them and say, hey, dude, it's not eclectic. It's rounded. Like, yeah, I yeah, understand yeah. a little more maybe because I listen to a little more. And I, I think, to there's a plus and a minus to locking yourself into the room with one vibe, you know, and just listening to it and putting it out there. Maybe in some strange way you become more of a maestro with it. I don't know. But I do like being rounded about stuff and being able to go, 
you know, there's a little jazz thing I heard a while back. Let's stick that in. Or there's this, this, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, the, uh, and, and you're right. There are people who are obsessive about what they're doing. And because of that obsession, it takes them to greater heights than yeah. you might scale otherwise yeah. as a player or as a writer. Um, but they're few and far between. I would agree. Uh, you know, they're generational virtuosos. Yeah. Um, for the rest of us, mere yeah. mortals, uh, <laughs> y- you might want to pick up some tricks from other people. You know? yeah. the, um, and that, you know, it, it kind of, when you start listening to music that way, you do hear how things bleed into each other, how yeah. they overlap and where little bits and pieces come in from stuff. And it's, um, and in, if it's done right, it feels completely natural. Yes. It doesn't feel like you tacked like a banjo on top of a hip hop track. It just sounds like a hip hop track with banjo. Um, and that's from that, that sort of broad listening. That, yeah. I think it's, I, to me, I think it's really important. I used to, when I was younger, I would, I'd get a little stoned if I couldn't sleep well and either put on jazz, a jazz station or a, a classical station. Sure. And I just felt like, you know, I, I worked at WLLZ, so I'd listened to rock and roll all day. So I, I needed kind of a palate cleanser for one thing. But it was just nice to be, you know, all of a sudden I was floating with music in my head. It, and most of it didn't have lyrics to it. And in a strange way, I think that helped me build like this idea of like music can come from different places. Yeah. And I, I think that you guys do that. You and, and Michael, when, when certainly you work on my stuff, I think that there's a creativeness that you guys tap into and, and some of it is a little country maybe because I, we had originally talked about it being Americano or somewhere in there. Um, cause I didn't fit in spandex anymore. So I felt <laughs> <laughs> it's time to go country. <laughs> it's time the to go jeans. Americana, baby. I'm going <laughs> Americana. And, and like, you know, you did route 66 for me. I think was the first one that you did. And, uh, that I found really interesting because if I remember correctly, I, I gave you a very rough form of the song and then I gave you what I consider to be a very rough vocal track. Right. And then I remember getting it back basically um, where it was prepped for me to put down my vocal track and you guys wrapped the music around what I did so well. I had to email Michael back. I'm like, uh, do I have to change the vocals? Even though I don't think it was like a, my favorite idea of a way to perform it, but you had taken it and basically built the music around what I did so well. And I guess it, it, it came into my head because it's, it's, it's this idea of roundedness because it, 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 that particular thing is not really country. It's more of a, a jazzy blues thing, really. Yeah, right. And I don't know that, you know, you sit in this, this room and make that happen time and time again. You work in different genres of music. You also do scores for, for, for television and movies. So really, any given day, you're in here and you're doing a, a different world of music, if, I, if I'm to understand what goes on down in this mad scientist's uh, laboratory here. Yeah, it, so, um, you know, it, it's interesting you point that out. It, and things have been a little bit different this past year with the pandemic and everything. But, um, you know, I kind of veer between um, when when we're in here producing a record, making a record from scratch, a lot of it's Americana or Roots kind of music. Um, but a lot of the work I get mixing, just straight as a mix engineer, is pretty edgy electronic yeah. or alternative pop. 
Um, and, and, and everything in between in the meantime, uh, and doing TV commercials, you know, there's always challenges there, but, um, I think that you, you kind of summed it up pretty well in that, yeah, I'm here every day working, um, but the sounds that are coming out of the speakers are all very different from Always each other. different. I mean, it's, it's, I would like to take the time to put in some Ghost's Dream music, which is a project you and, and, and Michael do. Um, do you have a particular song that you would favor if I were to stick that into the podcast? Yeah, there's, uh, there's a... Of, you know, well, you want me to pick my favorite child? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And <laughs> we'll stick few... we'll stick it in so people can hear yeah, what we're talking about. There's, there's, so there's a new track that we just did that's a remix. Gotcha. A band from Austin, Texas called The Bids. Um, let me see if they would be cool with us putting that in there. Okay. Because it hasn't. It's about to be released, so I'm, it depends on the timing of that. Okay. If not, um, we did a song. Uh, we so Ghost Dream is Mike and I essentially. And working with different vocalists almost on every track. Right. Um, but we've done a few with Julia Albert. And I think one of those, there's one called End Credits. Okay. And the and so the that project started with me and Mike drinking martinis. <laughs> and Good gripe, way to start. And griping about clients, right? Not right. that we love our clients. Um, but we're kind of, because a lot of times when you're working on specific client-driven stuff, you don't have as much freedom as you want. Right. Um, which is fine. Uh, but we were like, let's, so what if we didn't, what if we could do anything we wanted? Yeah. So he and I said, okay, we're going to bring all our weird influences together. And we have this strange Nick Cave meets Pink Floyd on acid. Oh, it's great stuff. <laughs> you know, I, or, and I hate when people always refer to something on acid, but yeah. It sounds like psychedelic. Yeah, rock. it's definitely so, like uh, trip trip hop is yeah. really what it what it right. And so we get to you know we get to bust out the drum machines and and dive into the hip hop part of it underneath. Yeah. But there's you know interesting chord changes and a lot of just sonic textures and and creating a soundscape. All right, well here we are. End credits with Julia Albert, Ghosts Dream. We begin again 
So what if we didn't? What if we could do anything we wanted? Yeah. So he and I said, okay, we're going to bring all our weird influences together, and we have this strange Nick Cave meets Pink Floyd on acid. Oh, it's great stuff. <laughs> you know, I, or, and I hate when people always refer to something on acid, but yeah. it sounds like psychedelic. Yeah, rock. it's definitely so, like uh, trip trip hop is yeah. really what it what it right. And so we get to you know we get to bust out the drum machines and and dive into the hip hop part of it underneath. Yeah. But there's you know interesting chord changes and a lot of just sonic textures and and well even even if I, if you take Ghost Riders in the Sky the version that you did with that with Billy Michael on vocals yeah it, even if you take that you've infused trip hop with a country what would be traditionally viewed as a country vibe perhaps but it's still not really that no because you're you're mixing a multitude of elements to to create this new thing and this new space of movement you know it's trip-hop music and then you know to me it's always amazing because you can't you know uh the little silver hearts is is the band you play in and pure country yep and it's just amazing like i'm a i'm a singer i can sing like broadway stuff i've done musical theater i can sing the way i sing but the range that, that you guys have when you collectively sit down, it just fascinates me. And there's, there's a lot of musicians like that. But I just, I just am so envious of that ability to, to I'm going to play country now. No, I'm going to do rock and roll. Now I'm going to do heavy metal. Now I'm going to do trip hop. It's freaking amazing. Well, there, I'll, I'm going to reveal a secret. I'm listening, baby. Is if you listen to any of those tracks, listen to the organ part, yeah. which is me. Yeah. It's all the same thing interesting it's, i'm playing the same thing on all those different things if i'm if i'm sitting behind the organ so is it is it the percussive and the space that you leave in the music that tends to change it in your opinion then it's it's the because it doesn't sound the same right no but, but, is, but i'm the same if you just listen trick. to the exactly. organ part I get you. i'm following like if you isolate the organ part you go like oh he played the same thing on those two songs yeah yeah <laughs> almost the same thing well organ in a strange way 
because you're doing a lot of corded stuff can feel the same anyway, right? Is that how you mean it? Really? Yeah, it's it's so I'm I'm what it is. I'm using the inter- instrument in the same way basically right. is that I'm creating space and texture. Yeah. Um you know, if you go to church, the organ kind of floats down from the balcony. Yes. Um and within all those different genres of music, whatever they might be, I'm letting the organ do that. Yeah. Um with little silver hearts playing next to a pedal steel player and a lap steel player all three of us are floating yeah you know but if you listen to what i'm doing with the organ it's filling that role is that you know occasionally there's a little solo or something but mostly it's just creating a sense of space in the music yeah and and i and i laugh because i it is a lot it's of your secret yeah well, not anymore you. but <laughs> <laughs> you gave it away baby. but but that that was the thing though is that i don't change the way i necessarily approach that instrument just because of what I'm playing on, right. playing that instrument in that way. And, um, and I've been trying, so f- one of my pandemic projects here is I've been t- learning how to play pedal steel too, Yeah, which is impossible. Show off. You're learning no. something I, you know, I'm no, 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 it, dude, it's like driving a 57 Oldsmobile with a blindfold on. Like there it's you impossible, go. um, to do really well. Cause it's so nuanced. It is. And I want to do that same kind of thing is I don't want to be a ripping like Western swing player, I want to be able to use it to create that sad sense of space that I heard ah. when I was a kid in Iowa, those lonesome high notes. And, yeah. you know, there's so, it, but it's a, it's a, it's one of the toughest things I've, I've tried to learn how to play. Um, but my point being that because it has that same sort of role or can, and it is very emotionally evocative. Yeah. I've I've really been drawn to it, and I, I unfortunately it was because uh, Tim Fleming from Little Silver Hearts passed away last year, and he was wow. our steel player. And um, I I had kind of thought that, you know, most old guys retire and take up golf. I was going to take up pedal steel, like nice. in my seventies, eighties, whatever. Yes. You know, whenever I get there, if I ever get there, you will. Um, and then after he left us, I I decided I was going to. Try to learn what he was doing. Yeah. And, and you know, I wish he was around so I'd ask him questions. Yeah. But I've got a lot of him on tape or on hard drive that I can listen and learn from. Um, so that's been the same thing. That That's not an instrument that necessarily crosses genres real well. Um, no, it doesn't seem to. I guess you could do some Hawaiian with it. and uh, you, you can you, you can make it fit. Like Elton John. Yeah. Tiny Dancer has... Pedal steel all over it. I never realized it until I started learning. And I was like, wait a minute, you know? Yeah. So it can, but it's really a very specific sound. It's a lovely sound. Yeah. It's so great. And, and it's been, despite the challenge, it's been really talking about listening. I'm listening to stuff that I've heard like Buck Owens. I've heard it millions of times, but I never listened to what the steel player was really doing. And so to go back and listen to stuff you already know and see it with like fresh ears, see yeah. it with, hear it with fresh ears. I no, I liked the, it. I got okay. what you're saying. <laughs> um, <laughs> see it, you see what I'm saying? It's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, I'm sensing it. You know? But that's been, that's been really cool because now I, you know, I'm rediscovering music I knew and, and, and hearing stuff I hadn't really heard before. Right. You listen to some of the steel greats like Bet, Buddy Edmonds. I've heard him play with people, but not his solo stuff. And then it's mind blowing and I'll never be able to do it, but to be able to hear it and appreciate it. Cause he plays jazz Yeah, when he's playing by himself and he's not backing up a country singer. He plays jazz on the steel and it's amazing. Yeah. I guess you can, you could take any instrument and really, if you master it, you could present it pretty much in any, anything, but it might run its use out 
like you're saying, with, right? With with just like a pop ballad, I don't know that it would fit in too much of that. Or well, what you don't want to do, I guess, ever is make it a gimmick, right? You you want to use the voice of that instrument to bring out the best of the song. Yeah, and you're right. You know, something that's more traditional folk instruments, maybe it's mandolin or banjo, pedal steel. Um, it's not, it's not really or folk, a dulcimer but, actually might even make the point better, right? Because it's such a, a it's thing. It's so itself. specific, yeah, and and so specific to genre. But then look at the violin. Yeah, absolutely essential if you're in a bluegrass band, right? Yeah, or you're in a symphony orchestra. Um, yeah, you know it, it. Well, it was a John Lupante is kind of a rarity, right? It was his gimmick, I guess. If, yeah, if, if, to define it in the way. But you're right that that uh, it's 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 going to have its uses, I guess, is really the way it could yeah, be. Yeah, and, and if you're being authentic about making music, you're going to make the sound, again, that suits the song. Yeah. yeah that's well, the most important thing. I think to your point, too, even in an orchestra, you know, you're using the oboe for a specific... Right. Because it has a sense of, of its own voice, and you're going to understand music, you're going to put it in the place that it's best served. Right, right. And, and you know, you can get um, probably pretty... Uh, pretty pretentious and talking about how you know i can (laughs) you know you're making a record you're creating an orchestra well okay we're we're not really but you know um, but it's it's filling in the the silence right in the way that evokes the emotion the song is supposed to be evoking yeah and whatever instrument you need to do that or noise at this point right yeah i think it's just as important as understanding the space Right, you know, you're. What are you filling the space with when you're filling it? Type of thing, you know. Yeah. Um, well, it's the, it's it's kind of like it's the opposite of the cliche about sculpture. Like, just remove all the stuff you don't want. Yeah. It's you're actually doing the opposite. You're, I never thought of it that way. That's you're funny. adding the stuff that you need rather than trying to carve it away. Yeah. And and if you have, you know, hopefully if you have big ears and you listen to a bunch of stuff, that gives you that much more to work with. Yeah. Well, if we're gonna go for like analogies, more colors to paint with yeah right i'm just thinking now how big my ears actually are <laughs> <laughs> i meant i like that one i, meant, <laughs> I know okay, what you meant right. i know exactly what you meant brother yeah. um yeah it's it's just and I, I say all that just wrapping into what you do what you what i've what you've done for me certainly you know made me aware of of a lot of these capabilities that i'm talking about um ghost dream which which we play on pluto um and it's just always just a nice Pluto radio is mostly alternative rock. We do play trip hop and it's such a nice kind of, um, variance to, to the flow of, of the music. And, uh, yeah, it's, I, I think people should certainly <laughs> look into here. Where would that, where would they be able to find uh, So Dream? we're on all the streaming services yeah. and it's ghost stream all run together as one yeah. word. Um, and, uh, Bandcamp too as well, which some people aren't big fans of Bandcamp, but right. ghostdream.bandcamp.com. Right. Um, I point people that direction because all of the songs are on one page ah. and you can kind of click through them. Yeah. Um, but if you're, if you're listening to Spotify or Apple or wherever it is you listen to music, it's all there. You'll show um, up. Yeah. In Pandora too. Yeah. So it's, um, it's really neat in this day and age that, you know, with the click of a mouse, we can get that music. Absolutely to as, as many people as want to listen no that's so true i i wanted to drift back to um 
Detroit, and this is just kind of a long shot. I think you guys mentioned you were friends with one of the guys from the Motor City Mutants. Yes. And it's Art, right? Art Lysak, yeah. And he is now out here in L.A., is that is that correct? Does he do music out here? A little bit, yeah. We, we got together um, a couple years ago, and he kind of said, we're starting a band, guys. And it's oh, called, nice. It's called the L.A. Detroiters. Nice. Uh, everybody, including... Uh, Chris Guizdala is the drummer, all of us from Michigan. And we did a couple songs. Um, we were about to start working on some new stuff right before the lockdown happened. Right. So I'm sure that'll come back sometime maybe late, you know, later this year, whenever we get the all clear. Um, and the first song that we recorded was a, oh man, I'm going to blank on the name of the band, Detroit band, but Bob Seger wrote it before he was Bob Seger. Right. And that's we've started there. It was an obscure, like you could only buy it on a forty-five oh, nice. back in you know the late sixties. And so we, but our, I think Art's intention was is hey, you know, let's let's throw down the gauntlet. Like we're from we're from Michigan, we're gonna play some Michigan. Music. We're from the D, baby. Yeah, right. And then <laughs> the next song was "Don't Be Afraid of Detroit," right, which is just a love letter that Art wrote to the city. Nice. And uh, and just so people know, uh, the Motor City Mutants. They were a exceedingly popular local Detroit band back in the days. They they people would really go show up in force to check these guys yeah. out time and time and time again. I actually my band actually opened for them once. Oh really? Oh. Yeah, it was a, such a cool experience because they were a little bit older than we were. And uh I just remember like I knew who they were but I hadn't seen them in person. And in the green room I got, you know, I got to meet them and I just, I, I, I don't know what I was thinking. I was like 22 at the time and I was thinking, man, those guys are really old. That's all I could, all I could really think at the time. But at the same time I could go, I guess in context, what I was saying in my head is like, they've been doing this a, a long time really well, if that makes sense, you right. know? And they, it was such fun and they were, they were cool guys to us and they were like rock stars. They really were. And, and it was, it was a great, it was at this bar way out on the uh, west side called The Ranch, which was in its waning days of trying to present rock and roll. Um, I think there was a thing that happened in Detroit in the 80s where you could make money as a rock band and then all of a sudden you couldn't, maybe because of karaoke. Yeah, I mean, things changed right yeah. about then, kind of everywhere. Yeah, you know? so I think karaoke killed the Motor City Mutants, if you actually, you, you know what I mean? It's just well, like yeah, that, that, that playing was... out thing is gone. Yeah, it, you know, at some point, the timeline might change a little bit, but it became a lot easier to just hire a DJ to, to yeah. play stuff than yeah. it was to have, have bands. And But they were great, man. And they, they put on a great show, and it wasn't a big full house. I think, again, the, the bar scene was dying out a little bit. and uh, But it was such a pleasure to be a, a part of that, you know, that one night of fame for me. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, hey, I warmed up for the mutants, man. Yeah. So. Well, we are... Uh, the we always have a lot of fun. Yeah, you know, what I mean that's it, it's. Uh, I'm going to butcher the quote, but it was Eddie Van Halen quote was, was you know, we're going to get to work. We play, yeah, music, yeah, and you know, it's fun um, most of the time. Yeah, well, yeah. when you're playing the music, it is right. Yeah, and and but you're also hanging out with the people. Yeah, you know, and and just you know, working with art and everything it was a lot of laughs. You know, just because you're having fun doing what you're doing, you have a good time. It's not just the music. You have a good time with the people while you're making the music. And, you know, that's, you know. It's fun. Not, not much better to do than that, right? Exactly. 
You know, that's, that's, and every once in a while I go like, hey, that's my job. Yeah. That's, that's all right. Well, I wanted to talk to you too, speaking of jobs, is you did travel as a, a sound guy, I believe, or maybe sound guy slash roadie, maybe one of each at any given time. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. I think you mentioned that you roadied for Willie Nelson at some point. So I worked for about 10 years as a recording engineer on the road, okay. which is a little bit of a weird job in that, um, you know, what I was doing wasn't impacting what's happening on stage or in the room. I'm just capturing it. Right. And so at the time, working and, and Willie's a great example, what we would do is we would record the show and we would burn it to little thumb drives and sell them at the merch booth so you could actually walk home oh, with the show damn. that you just heard. Yeah. Right? And so we were there capturing every night, making a live record every night. And um, the you know, the immediacy for people while they're caught up in the moment of just seeing a great show and heard this great music is is they could literally like go home and listen to it that same night again and have it. And so I was out and we worked with Willie. I had a a team of folks I was working with um, and Matchbox 20, Smashing Pumpkins, did a lot with The Cult, Gladys Knight. Um, Nice. You know, there was... OAR was another one who are bigger actually in the Midwest than they are out here in the West right. Coast. But um, we went back to Meadowbrook with them. You oh, know, wow. <laughs> I was okay. like, wow, I mean, that's I, a nice. I saw Jean Luc Ponty when I was a kid. At oh my god, I mentioned him earlier too. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know you knew who he was. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, so, but we would be on the road with, like, embedded with those guys, whether we're on the bus or had our own transportation, but we're there every day, every night, and it was. So much fun. Yeah. Just so much fun. But it's a young man's game. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not easy. Because you're just, like you're just moving all the time, setting up someplace new. You might be there for two nights. Catch sleep when you can. Right. You know, it's, it's road work. Right. Um, but I really enjoyed it. And the, um, <clears throat> the, the fun part is, is that you are somewhere new every time. Right. right. Whether it's good, bad, or otherwise, it's something new every day. Do you, if you see, um, I've had my own experiences with this, but if you see, for example, the same, uh, performer night after night after night, do you find moments where, it, it, cause you might sometimes be working for somebody you don't even really appreciate their music per se. Yeah. Um, we won't mention any names of course, <laughs> Nope. but do you find even in those cases, one night where you just go, damn, I, I guess I just didn't see this. This is amazing. Yeah. Um, you know, every act is different. Right. Um, and there, there's kind of like, there's nights when magic happens. Right. Period. No matter how good they are, how consistent they are, there are nights when magic happens. And you never know when that's going to happen that's until cool. the music starts, you know? Yeah. And um, you always hope it's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, but, and, and, by any means, I'm not saying that another show wasn't phenomenal. Right. But it might not have been magical. Um, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Like those moments where you're just there and like you've been there, for, you've been with this band for two weeks already. And all of a sudden one night you're just like, damn, something glorious is happening right yeah. now. Yeah. And that makes all the backaches and yeah. tiredness and everything else worthwhile. Who surprised you the most that way? Oh, that's a really good question. 
And it could be someone that you obviously really loved and even still they took it to a, a different height or just someone that you were like, you know, these guys are okay. I'm glad to have the gig. But all of a sudden you're like, damn, they just opened the roof, man. Yeah, you know, um, the, the cult comes to mind. Right. Uh, because they, they're great every night. Right. They just, they deliver, right? And across their catalog, they've got all these great songs. But every once in a while, like, yeah. there'd be a guitar solo and the hair would stand up on the back of my neck and I'd go like, wait a minute. Nice. Like, you know, where did, he didn't play that for the last 12 nights. Where, yeah. where did that come from? Or or Ian would just be laying into the vocals and, and you know, it would, and you're working, right? You're working. Yeah. But all of a sudden you kind of like, you look up and go, wait a minute what's going on here? Yeah. This is great. I hope I'm recording it. You know? <laughs> you're, you're so distracted all of a sudden. You're yeah. like, oh How crap, am I doing work? what but, I'm supposed to be doing? But, you know, that's, that's, it's not just that band. It kind of happens. Yeah, that's what I mean. It, it, it's a beautiful thing though, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it, it, it's why we do this. It's, I think it is. You know, it, it's, you don't always tap into that whatever the universe is delivering to you. But that's what you're kind of setting up like a shaman, basically. You're going to do your mantras or whatever. Come on down. Exactly. Fill the vessel, you know. Exactly. Um, but there's but there's also the the only way that works is that if you are a dedicated hard-working craftsman or craftswoman who can do the job, deliver for the audience night after night without relying on some sort of you know spiritual enlightenment right. awakening just to to be able to make music. Yeah. You've got to be able to be a professional performer who's open to that. I think so, too. I mean, my experience with it was uh, Marty and Elaine, where, uh, I mean, I worked at the Dresden uh, pre-COVID for uh, some years, and, and I got to see them three nights a week do three-hour shows, and it, it's that's a lot of time behind instruments. It is. And uh, those that don't know, Marty and Elaine are a jazz duo that, that are... Uh, certainly have huge cult following in the An world. L.A. institution. Yeah. And they do uh, lounge jazz, only it's heightened and uh, uh, very flourished in a way that's very unique. And people show up at the club constantly just because they're there. And to watch them night in and night out work as technicians. But then there's that moment where it's like, damn, Marty sounds just like Sinatra, maybe even a little better tonight. <laughs> and, you know, which again, jazz isn't even my my thing. I, I'm not, I, I mean, I do like jazz that's abstract. I'm not big on, um, you know, big band style music sure. or Sinatra stuff. But it's still so compelling at those moments of, of I guess, enlightenment or whatever, <laughs> magic. Yeah. And uh, that's why I wanted to ask you. I also wanted to ask about um, what do you think, I mean, I think I might know, but what do you think the key differences are about recording live and then in a studio? Obviously, there's a time difference and a relaxed, like you're relaxed in your studio because theoretically you have more time to, to digest what you're doing. But what do you find after all the years of experience, the big differences are between the two? Um, well, I'll tell you the mistake that I hear people make is that they try to make a live recording sound like a studio recording with an audience. Yeah. And that's not what it is. Um, you, you're, you're, you're documenting something that has occurred, 
right? Yes. It goes down in real time. And if there's a mistake, there it goes. It flies by you and you can't get it back, you know? So, um, th- you know, my, my approach to recording live, and I think I make fairly good sounding live recordings, but it's always been to capture what I hear in the room that night, not to try to recreate the record and just have, you know, cause you can do that. And there's, there's, you know, lots and lots of live albums that were played in the studio and they overdubbed crowd music Correct. or some, you know, or some, especially back in the day. Yeah. Or some hybrid of that, you know, yeah. um, they record it live and go back and replay everything anyway. Um, yeah, which you can sometimes hear original. in the bleed from yeah. other microphones and stuff. Um, but my thought was always like, as a music fan, I want to experience what these people are doing on this stage. We're in the same room, breathing the same air, and we're creating, a, again, a document of that. Right. We're capturing it. We're not trying to make it something it's not. Work at the studio is completely the opposite in that you are creating from thin air, like we were talking before, right? art, new art, um, and you do have the not just the luxury of time, but you have the luxury of thought. Yeah. Um, if there's a mistake, you can embrace it or you can replace it. Yeah. But you're, you're creating a, a whole new thing that didn't exist before. And then going to send it out to the world, hopefully, right? Yes. Live recording, you're in a room at a moment, and that's what it is. And you make it sound as great as you can. You know, don't get me wrong, but I think that keeping that in mind in both situations is really important, so that you're you're serving the song, you're serving the artist the best that that you can. Yeah. Um, you know, for some for some performers, they they would get very nervous that you're recording them live every night. You know, what if I make a mistake or what if something goes wrong? Right. You know, and what was interesting to me that, especially with singers, is that making a mistake was often a moment in the show where they had an opportunity to connect with the audience in a huge way by acknowledging the mistake, walking back around to where they started and then nailing it. Right, right. getting it right the next time. And the, when you see a performer do that, that's some of those magic moments. Yeah. And then the the crowd's with them. They want them to succeed, right? They're, they have paid their hard-earned cash to hear this performer do what they do best. And now by being a little bit vulnerable, they, it gives them an opportunity to make an even deeper connection to those fans. And and But you have to, you have to have the sort of confidence to know that like, hey, it's live. If something yeah. can go wrong, it will, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I see what you're saying. And, and, and obviously in the studio, if you want, you know, you can take a, a, a snare drum and make it rattle exactly the way you envision it. Whereas live, you're, you're stuck with what's going on in the, so I, I see you might, you might even be fighting it. Correct. You know, it might not be, it's what the drummer wants to hear on stage, but it's not what works great for recording, right. but that's what it is. And exactly. you got to figure out how to make that sound good. And Again, capture the moment. Exactly. It's funny, too. You brought up an idea that I always have that I think I learned from singing with Marty and Elaine and a lack of control as a singer, meaning I, I, didn't, I don't get to rehearse with them. They're basically jazz people that are like, hey, dude, do you know the lyrics and the, 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 you know how it goes, the melody? I'm like, yeah, that's all you need. Just step up and sing it. Right, here we go. One, two, I'm like, three, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> <laughs> and half the time I'm like, am I in front of them? Am I taking them on the ride or are they taking me on the ride? So it's very confusing or was for a long time. 
And, but it did teach me, I think a lot of times now I, I'm happier with some of the nuance that I don't control as a singer, if this makes sense, because I find when I listen back to it, that it's more real. Right. You're, you're making an emotional delivery. Right. Yeah. And that's what music's supposed to be. Right. Uh, and it, and that's kind of the differences that you're you're talking about, right? Yeah, but the, this happens in the studio too, especially uh, you know, um, especially because when you're listening in in a studio setting, you're kind of putting everything. You're listening to every little teeny detail, right? Yeah. Um, and a lot of performers, if you're if you're sitting in the producer's chair, a lot of time, your job is to identify what's great and what's working even if the performer isn't 100% confident in it right and that's not just because you're making a product for the market that's because you're making art and they don't have the perspective as a performer to see the big picture because they're worried about oh I kind of choked off that tea or you know exactly but the way the emotion that they conveyed when they did it that's what you want right that's what we're we're trying to capture in the studio is emotive performances that lead to this song that will connect with listeners emotionally. And that doesn't mean perfection. And that's what drives me crazy about auto-tune. Yeah. Um, and it drives me crazy about computer recording. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going back to analog tape. But um, I've got an analog tape machine. I just pointed out for <laughs> you podcast viewers. Um, so, but the you need to use those tools in a way that captures the human performance and not just makes it superhuman now there's a you know there's some styles of music where that's, that, yeah, that's yeah, the goal like and EDM, that's, it's it doesn't necessarily but i totally hear what you're saying and, and and that's how you're saying you frame your approach to art for sure where you like that and i say i don't even mean that i would make a mistake per se if that's no. what i said but it's like i understand now what you're talking about i wouldn't have understood it 15 years ago right well that comes with experience and age and ah. and you know, doing it night after night and, and, or being thrown into a situation like you're saying, where right. if you're used to being well rehearsed yes, and now you're, you know, playing jazz, you're making it all up as you go anyway, right. for the most part. Right. Right. Um, and you're thrown into that, that a lot of singers would say no. Yeah. I, I struggled with it for a while. And then I, she finally, Elaine finally talked to me to doing it. I'm like, no, I'm cause I was afraid yeah. to, to do it. And I'm like, you want me to your point, uh, we've never rehearsed. I, you know, I'm used to doing rock and roll where the drummer's telling me where I'm at and I don't have to think about it. I can just ride whatever whatever yeah. the percussion's doing. And now you guys are going to follow me sometimes and you're going to get ahead of me sometimes. I don't know how to do that. Yeah, that's so that's my uh, one of the interesting things about playing with Little Silver Hearts. Right. That's what, yeah, what you were talking about, that whole experience of like playing songs on the fly. Yeah. So the, what led to that? What, so first of all, we're following, so Sean Lowenthal's the singer. Right. And we're... As it was when we never did a lot of rehearsals, but we learned quickly on stage that we needed to follow him. Right. Because depending on how he was thinking or feeling about a song, that's the way it would go that night. Sometimes fast, sometimes slow, right. sometimes both, you know, because he was just feeling it. He's like, a good singer, it, too, man. I, I really think cool, what he like, does. He's got a cool, like, really yep. a lot of character in his voice. Definitely. That was what drew me to him to work with him in the first part. Yeah, that, I, I just heard that Talking head song, and not to take you off point. Oh, yeah. And I just thought, I go, there's no way they can pull this off. Go, oh, well, yep, they just pulled it off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and it's real weird. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he he would, you know, he would get excited and start pushing it, pushing the tempo. And so we're a band and we would go with him. So one night we were playing downtown L.A. at the Love Song Bar, um, which is right like in the Arts District. 
And we were just about done. We had done a few sets, two or three sets. Um, and the this guy comes up, says something to Sean, and Sean turns around and goes, hey, this guy's going to pay us 100 bucks if he can sing a song. I'm like, oh, great. We're a karaoke band now, right? But we're like, okay. You know, we'll take the hundred bucks. We, we got a beer tab to it's pay. A couple you know, drinks, you know, there, we baby. Got a beer tab to pay. We, we better take the hundred bucks, guys. You know, we're getting paid for being here, but we'll take a tip. So this guy like whips out a guitar. I don't know what, if he was walking around downtown with his guitar or what. Right. And he starts playing a song. So we're thought, oh, we're going to play, you know, uh, Proud Mary or I don't know. Right. Nope. Original song. Oh my god. So he starts playing. And Sean's looking at his hands and showing us his guitar while Sean's playing along with them, right? So by the first chorus, full band is playing. We're singing backups. Like, we just... Making it it's up. Like, it's like we knew the song. Yep. And and we got to, like, okay, here comes the bridge. Like, what's the bridge? And the guy kind of said, like, hey, take a solo. Or, you know, we're like, oh, okay. <laughs> it's just going to ride out on this same chord change. And that was it. We never rehearsed again after that. Right. And we made it a point to play a couple new songs every night. Never rehearsed them, called out the, the song and the key. And we crashed and burned once. Yeah, but there's something to the freshness of that, don't you find? I oh, mean, it's great. The no, it's, I, like, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I hate rehearsal. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I hate playing it over and over again, but yeah. you, sometimes you got to do it. But but to have the... So first of all, we've all been playing together for a while, so we kind of have that telepathy that you d- develop with a band. Yes. And and the the trust that... Someone's going to get you back. If you're right. So down. if you're up there flying solo with Marty and Elaine, you know they're not going to leave you hanging. Oh, my God. No way. Right. They, they got you. You're good. Yep. Um, yeah, we crashed and burned one time out of hundreds. And I don't know what happened, but it, but it, we kind of laughed it off. And then yeah. and one, two, three, four, played the song. Yeah. You know? So it's it's a whole different way of playing music that jazz people are completely used to. Yeah. And they, other folks are not. Yeah. Because you have a framework, you have a song and some changes. It is. It's so surprising. I remember she. It did take. It took her two years to talk me into singing. Wow, really? Yeah, and she'd come up like this little angel every two months and look up to me, and she's like five foot tall, and she'd go, "John, when are you going to sing with us?" And finally, I'm like, "Well, fuck, she's the only one who cares if I sing." (laughs) And so I finally go, "You know what, Elaine? I've heard you do uh, Hey Bartender.'" Sure. I'll relearn it. I'll I'll go with you next week. Next week, and she's like, "Really?" And I'm like, "Yeah." So I remember, like, I'm I'm singing it. I'm like halfway through the first verse, and I'm going, "Okay, this isn't this isn't good, but it's not tragic, right?" And I get into the second verse, and I'm like, "What I was talking about?" I go, "Am I f- following them? Am I on the groove with them? Am I? Are they following me?" I was confused, and so I looked over, and I see this 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 little lady just wailing on her keyboard like she does. And she was looking at me with such intensity. It's exactly what you said. I realized at that moment, it's like, I can't fail at this. As long as I get something out, she's compensating for it with all of her musical might to make me sound good. Yeah. And it was brilliant. I mean, it, that's the beginning of my lesson about jazz or, or giving over in the way that you're talking about giving over to the moment as a performer. It's an amazing feeling. Yeah. Well, it's also terrifying. It um, was. Because you don't know what's going to happen necessarily. And, and, um, Again, coming from that sort of very well-practiced, well-rehearsed background, you know what? Uh, I've worked with a lot of groups that use backing tracks. Yeah, um, rock bands, not just you know electronic or hip-hop acts, but rock bands too with backing tracks. And it, it 
means that they sound amazing and they can deliver studio stuff to an audience right. that you you'd need 30 extra people to pull off maybe or, or if you could yeah. um but they have to do it exactly the same every night because they're in the same time zone every time they're man. they're listening in their ear yeah. they've got a click in their ear and they've got to stick to it and then i worked with one other band that didn't use backing tracks but used a click for every song but one they had one song at the end where they turn it off i could never figure it out i'm like you guys are a rock band what are you doing yeah like Play rock and roll. <laughs> Stop listening to the metronome. Play Let some it flow, baby. But that wasn't there. They were like, we have practiced this. Yeah. We have decided this is how we present these songs to our audience. And, and they, you know, they did very well. And Yeah, I mean, I understand that too. But, you know, I, I found that it, it made, it freed me up to do a lot of things that I, I mean, it freed me up to start singing again and have you guys produce for me. It freed me up as an actor. Like I, I used to show up with the same type of feeling of control, yeah. you know, I got to control this. It's got to be perfect. And then they taught me like, you know, it's, it's still perfect the other way, you know, with, with yeah. some fluidity and, and being in the moments actually gives you greater strength. And I mean, it's just a really interesting thing. It, it is. And it's, um, it's not for everybody, Yeah, but I certainly think that, you know, being able to, it's the spirit of improvisation. Yeah. And the fearlessness to—you've got to be ready to fail. Yeah, I think so. You know that you probably aren't gonna. Which is really but, silly too. But in giving a way. that away, yeah, is is not something that performers do readily. Yeah, and it's really silly too because the I guess I guess the thing the fear is like I'm gonna suck so bad no one will ever let me do it again. Right. And I didn't realize that until this right. until we were talking about it. Because you think about it, it's like, what's the big deal? You know, how many nights have I been at the Dresden where they have open mic night and there's been some really terrible singers. I don't remember who they are. It's not, I'm not going through my life bumping into them thinking, hey, you're that singer who really sucked that night. <laughs> and I'll tell you, I had one night where I had an uh, issue going on with my throat and Elaine goes, hey, are you okay to sing? I go, sure. And my throat in the first line, I squeaked. And I heard a lady in the front of the room say, Oh my God, this guy sucks. And I thought, no, no, come back. You should have been here last night or you, wait, come back tomorrow night when my voice is back. You know what I mean? It's a strange phenomena. It, it is. And when, you know, it's so, especially for acts that are on the road playing five, six nights a week. Right. It's really hard physically. Right. To stay in shape for, to perform. Um, not, you know, singers have a, specific challenge depending on what right. their technique their is voice, like yeah. to keep their throat okay but it goes for drummers and it goes for guitar players fingers yeah. and you know like it's it's a real the physicality of music is something that's often overlooked um but again if you if your muscles know what to do yeah they'll do it yeah and some nights are magic some nights are not but the nights that aren't are fine it's fine and it is very rare that you hear that you hear or see somebody fail so badly yeah. that you go, "Oh my God, what the? I want my money back." You know, <laughs> I, think like, I, I hit that night that night. You know, what yeah, I mean? yeah. Hey, it happens. <laughs> but so what? I still live through it. Exactly. The worst thing that's going to happen is you're going to have to get up and make music the yeah. next day. I'll bump I mean, into that lady at the store and she'll just say what I said. You're, you're that really terrible singer guy. And yeah. I'm like, yeah, you're right. You caught me. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I kind of <laughs> sucked last night. You know, like, don't be afraid to suck. Yeah, it's it's funny, man. And do you when 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 you release a song, for example, 
that's recorded opposed to performing live, do you still have that a little bit of the same angst with a recorded song if you're passing it over to a friend or something, or are you just really comfortable with it at this point? Yeah, no, I, you know, you you have the opportunity to fix all the things in the studio you want to fix. Right. Um, what I've learned over years now is there are certain things that, like if I could go back and fix them, I would. Right. Don't let those go out. <laughs> yeah. like, I, you know what they are, and you're like, eh, it's not so bad. Yeah. And then like 10 years from now, you listen to it, and you're like, oh, why didn't I, I fix that? I knew I should have. So as long as you follow your instinct there as to, like, don't let your insecurities create false impressions of what's bad. Right. That's a totally different battle to fight. And that's more performers fight that more than engineers and producers. But if there is something that you just, you know, like it's the 10 year rule for me now, right? 10 years, if I hear that again, am I going to like cringe? Right. If that's the case, we need to Fix not pass this on exactly. to the world. Um, but if there's nothing like that and it's, you've created this art, it doesn't need to be earth shattering or perfect or anything. But if you are making an honest, authentic expression, then put it out to the Have world. And, it. you know, if people want to like it, great. If they want to hate it, then they probably should spend their energy and time doing something better. Yeah, but, they'll move on to the band they like. Yeah, I would think. you know, like it's it, so. Although in today's world, you'll probably be in trouble some way by some group that wants to banish you from somewhere because you. No, I'm teasing. I, I'm. Sh- <laughs> I'm teasing. I went no, on a rant, I, man. I, I'm sure if you went back throughout the <laughs> the recorded history of all the music I've ever made or been part of there's plenty of stuff to cancel <laughs> there's a, a little bit there let's say well you know well i always think about acdc they you know their their sort of schoolyard sexual innuendo is not subtle right somehow they're able to do it and and not seem to really offend any well maybe not anybody but offend people in a way that other people can't right um he's got big balls <laughs> that's one of the first songs I learned on guitar. <laughs> there you, know? you go, baby. <laughs> but it, it's, I guess, uh, maybe there's enough humor in it that yeah. people don't take it too seriously. Um, well, I think, too, that might have been just the difference in, in time. But and, it is. so. And there's kind of a grandfather acceptance to certain things. But, I, I, you know, I didn't mean, I was just kidding about about the whole cancel culture well, thing. I, I, but you bring up an interesting thing. And you mentioned Sinatra a little while ago. And, one, and you mentioned live recordings. Right. I, I should have brought this up when you, when you did. Um, the greatest live recording I've ever heard is the Rat Pack Live at the Sands. Okay. Recorded early 63, I think. Wow. So it's Dean, Frank, and Sammy, big band with strings at the Sands doing their nightclub act. Recorded on a three-track mobile recorder by Wally Heider. Um, it sounds amazing. It sounds so good that you can hear Lucille Ball in the audience laughing at the oh, jokes and, and, and identify her. And later on, they actually point her out. Yeah. But er, like, I remember going, that's Lucille Ball. Yeah. You know, just that laugh, right? It is, they didn't have auto-tune. They didn't have Pro right. Tools. They didn't have computers. It was live to tape, no overdubs. They didn't fix it later. And occasionally you hear them poof into the mic a little bit. Yeah. You know, singing a B or a D or something. But the jokes, you just couldn't tell these days. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, they're hilarious for the time, but right. they're just pushing all the buttons, right? right? And, I, you know, I remember I, I, I've loved that record for 
ever. And I probably know every note on it backwards and forwards. Right. I remember playing it at the house when we had people over once and I was like, ooh. It's a little harsh maybe. I don't know. Yeah. If, you know, the sort of racially charged, it's, yeah. the, it's the jokes like your grandpa used to tell. Yeah. You know, a little off color, a little, a little edgy for the time, but... Well, at the but, same time, in fairness to those guys, you had Sammy Davis, and they were pushing boundaries by the fact that he was there, and he was buddy with them, and and they they knew that I think they knew all along that hey, like we're going to push this on the world. Oh no, yeah, Sinatra had an agenda. So that's not it. Uh, you know, I, I think that's what if you are to talk about cancel culture, I think that's the part that's missing is an un- understanding of a context is long gone with a lot of people that want to cancel. It's like, wait a minute, you know? Right. This guy was 16 years old, or this lady was 16 years old. It was an off-color joke that half of Americans probably still say at some place, somewhere. Of course, not me, but, you know, half of You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, it's a commonness that exists in a lot of us, and you're going to roast him, you know, or her for something. It, it's just, that, that part of it's absolutely ridiculous. Well, that's kind of what I was getting at, is that, if you take the the nightclub act out and you just have the music, right, you can't cancel that, right, because it's undeniable, yeah, you know, and so you just have to kind of take that all together. And you're right, they were peers working on stage together, yeah. and at a time, you know, this is the the middle yeah. of the civil rights movement, you know, a time when that wasn't happening. They couldn't even play some places. Yeah. I um, mean, you could look at what Sammy did a lot of times and go, oh, he's being exploited. I could see someone making that argument, but my argument would be, no, 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 he was, he was pushing, they were pushing the bounds on yeah. all of that, albeit it was packaged in a way that was acceptable. Right. That the, um, I, but for you and for anybody listening, go back and find that yeah. album, listen to it with the jokes. Um, but because it works best as a continuous thing because they don't, they don't, with a bit of a, you know, a, an awareness yeah, assigned to it. Like if, if, you're, if you're sensitive to that type of thing, please don't. Yeah. But if, if you know, understand what Ed's saying is the, the, the recording aspects of it alone are worth your ear bones time. Yeah, the, the recording and the performances too are and, just amazing. And why were there three tracks? What, was, what were the tracks used for? So in, uh, in the early days of analog tape recording... Um, so I think it was Ampex that made the machines right about the you know, 1958, 59. They were working on, you know, or- orchestral recording was the serious stuff. Right. That, and it was also for audiophiles. Like we want to really, we want to hear the orchestra kind of like we were talking before. Like you're sitting in the room in the concert hall. Yeah. And so they were doing pretty rudimentary stereo recordings in the late, late 50s, early 60s. Um, and the thought was is that if you had a third microphone you could put two towards the edges and one in the center to Got really you. capture that whole orchestra so that was kind of driving the technology and that's sort of what they were limited to anyway just mechanically and technologically and so wally Hyder was a engineer who he he had a studio here in la um and then he was one of the first guys who had a mobile truck right he actually had a van with the recorder in the back of it and he went out to vegas to record this thing um Later on, like at his studio, Hendrix recorded there, and Fleetwood Mac, oh, I nice. think their first record was made at his studio. You know, it, it was, it, it wasn't a one-off for him to do this, this Rat Pack record. Um, but it was just, it was kind of the limitations of the technology. There wasn't a four-track or an right. eight-track or 16-track machine to take on the road at that point. So it really was an idea of, of uh, it would be trial 
I guess. Yeah, really, I mean, in, in the end, the, most of it probably when it was f- the the albums were pressed stereo, but anything for radio was probably mono anyway because it was AM right. radio, right? So it was just a matter of, and this is something I've never been able to find out is how how many microphones were on stage that he was feeding those three tracks. So you have the three singers, right? The band. There's a piano player. Oh, I think, I see and I what think, you're saying. I think the piano player changes per guy. Like where was the, the setup? Yeah. And the string section. Like, did he have five microphones? Did he have ten? And would he, he would have had the ability to put two microphones into some kind of thing where he controlled the volume. Well, on to both, mix right? it, yeah. you know. But even those mixers back then were like, yeah, the big potted stuff. Yeah, and, yeah, you know, I gotcha. Really rudimentary electronics. Um, but the fact that he could go to a nightclub with his van and, and make something that sounds that good yeah. is still mind-blowing to me. Well, it is. It's such a fascinating thing, you know, to go even further back. Like in Sun Studios, there's there's those guys, say just Elvis as an example. You know, you got, you got a drum, you got a stand-up bass, a guitar player, and Elvis. And so you had to, to my understanding, correct me certainly if I'm wrong, you would set... A microphone drop a microphone in because it was mono and you'd have to say okay the drummer needs to be moved back five feet because elvis and move elvis a little closer and move that guitar player over there even though it's mono that's how they mixed in in theory right they were yeah. moving the bodies so there was so at sun there was a couple things going on one they might have had more than one microphone right like they might have had elvis had his his vocal microphone they might have had gotcha. mics for the other stuff but they're all. If, have you ever been down there? No, my kid just went. Okay, like last it's, year. it's a little office. Yeah, um, with some acoustic tiles on the. Yeah. On the but because it was that small room, you're right. They had to position position the people in the room, right, so that the result sounded good. And one of the things that sounds so great about those first five or six Elvis singles on Sun Records is you can hear the drum kit in his vocal mic. Yeah. And it's just slamming. Yeah. Because it's what he, he's standing right in front of the drummer, right? Yeah. You know, so it's not just like, oh, the drummer sounds cool. It's that it's all mushed together. Yeah. And uh, he, would ha- he would have to do X amount of performances until he got the performance right collectively. Everybody. Correct. Yeah. If one guy messes up, right. everybody's got to play it right. again. Right. And again, you know, you really didn't have, they were doing probably some punch ins at that point where they would be able to record one thing over again. But here's the problem the bleed that you just talked about right you yeah. can't all of a sudden it would be like where's that where's that half of the sound going right it would just drop out and you'd right. hear the you know elvis say like, sudden, baby exactly. <laughs> and then would come back exactly in. so you even if you could with technology do some of that editing and manipulating that was still really limited so by the time you get to the 60s though things become much more sophisticated yeah. so and, really we're talking about a 10-year jump basically from what we just described at sun to the Sinatra recordings that you're you're talking about. So yeah, I mean, well, at Sun, it's even than... five or six years. Yeah, but you've got you've got okay back, you know, in, in the dawn of time, in the dinosaur day, when they were cutting directly to wax. Right. It actually had a cutter, and you played, and it went from start to finish. And if you right. messed up, that's what. It, There's your recording. They had one horn. It wasn't even a microphone. It was like a horn, like a. Uh, almost looks like, uh, you know, kind of like uh, what you, a cheerleader would shout out of. Right, right? a was, megaphone. Not even a megaphone, like a bullhorn kind gotcha. of thing, I guess, yeah, right? Yeah. Like no electronics. And they would position everybody around the room. And if you listen to a lot of that old jazz stuff mostly, there's no drums. Because the drums were too loud. And they would overpower everything. Interesting. So you get into other little percussive stuff. And then as the technology gets better and you get into the 
Glenn Miller, Benny Goodman era, when you have the big band and you have a, like a drummer just killing it, at that point, the microphones had developed and recording technology developed to where you could capture that without right. it and make it sound good. And you're still talking about probably cutting to disc. Um, and then following World War II is when analog tape kind of came into the picture. And so you had those early early rock and roll recordings, stuff you heard in the 50s, or even Sinatra in the 50s is, is doing that. But then the leap comes, you have the three-track recorder followed quickly by the four-track recorder. Okay. And you have George Martin over in right, London with all the Beatles creating stuff. Sgt. Pepper, sure. right? Which is the the technological feats that they went to to, to create that stuff with just a four-track right. is like mind-blowing. Right. But... Then they well, if you've got four is good, then we need eight. Yeah, <laughs> then it started uh, blossoming. And, and, right until you get to the seventies, where twenty four was the standard, but yeah. you kind of go a little bit bigger, and to now where it's absolutely unlimited because it's just a matter of how big your hard drive is. Yeah, it's it is it is a strange. Like my son has no idea about that progression because he started on a computer, you know. Right. And I think the last time I recorded, I think it was a thirty two track. Yeah. Which is, it seems like a weird number now to me, but... No, I, there was a time when Sony was making 32-track And they machines. were jumping from, in eights, right? It would go from 8 yep. to 16 to 24 to 32. Yeah, for for whatever reason, the, yeah. that was the way that record heads worked. Yeah. Right? And and that gets into the electronics, a little electrical engineering side more than I can understand. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting, and, and I think the last studio I recorded at had built a, a Synclavier room. Oh, yeah. And, you know, to think about a computer that took up the room of half an office yep. to create, you know, whatever sound, you know, it, it pretty much could create anything uh, as far as like what a keyboard could provide. And then now it's just like, bam, it's right there at your fingertips. So Yeah. So one of the projects I've been working on for the last few months is, and if you, you can see the stack there. Oh, yeah. Listeners, yeah, there's a whole yeah. bunch of analog tapes. I got a tons of those myself. Um because I've been going back through tapes that are 25, 30 years old and pulling off the recordings and digitizing them. Yeah. And it's it's interesting to go back because you can, the the limitation of eight makes choices. Right. And you can hear those, you can hear, like I, I remember what we were doing, but also you can hear the choices that you wouldn't make now. Yeah. You know, there's, there's you know, one of the channels will have tambourine in the chorus and backing verse for backing vocals in the verse. And, you know, it's really right. weird, but no, it's true. I remember that as I well. Like, it. like, okay, I have two guitars, a bass, a drum. I want to keep those clean. So I'm putting those on, you know, you start to think that way. Yep. Now you don't have to at all. Nope. And, and, you know, there's a lot of discussion about that. The freedom to be able to create that way is, was great, but also having to commit to decisions while you're doing things, in the moment is a different way of thinking about the art. Yeah. Um, the limitations kind of force you to make those decisions when you have no limitations in terms of technology, then is that, you know, is that making it a little, a little lazy? Yeah, I get it. It's almost like, uh, okay, you're stuck. You, you, you can only paint a watercolor today. You yeah. can't use oils and you're going to, you know, there's certain beauties that a wa watercolor can give you that oils can't give you. You right. know what I mean? It's the same, it's the same argument in a, in a strange way. Yeah, right? It's the, me the, the limitations of the medium create yeah. the art in a, in a large, to a large degree. Yeah. And I think that probably per different artists made a difference. You know, yeah. some, some like the Beatles, if they had all that freedom today, you know, would they have accomplished the same? I mean, obviously 
they were quite well renowned for their time, but right. they had to use exactly what you were talking about. You know, four track, how do you, you got to, okay, the drums and the guitar are going on this track. We got to bounce it down. Yep. And that in itself was an art, I suspect. Yeah, because if you get that wrong, you the, can't go back. Yeah, you got to go back to playing it all again. The way yeah, back. yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, in that era, they were still in the room playing, and if one guy messed up, everybody had to play it. Do again. it again. You yeah. know, so it's the combination of that limitation plus yeah. you know some technological freedom, but not a lot. Yeah, um, and that's where you get into the appreciation of what they were able to do. So true, man. Hey, so I did briefly want to ask you about one more thing sure. uh, before we wrap up. So you've worked and, you know, you've made a good life for yourself out of music. And uh, I, I, we didn't touch upon uh, scoring and television. Maybe next time around we can sit and talk about that. But what would you say, like my young son is struggling to find a way to make livelihood out of his musical career. Mm-hmm. What in general would you, you know, I'm not saying advice, but what, what kind of guidance or, or, or what would you point him to? He happens to do EDM, um, just to maybe give you one more degree, but what would you kind of put out there? Well, there's, there's a few things that, uh, that apply no matter what type of music you're making. One is make it, don't wait, make it now, make lots of it, make art. Don't be afraid. Don't wait for permission. It's kind of like back to that punk rock thing again, right? That's beautiful, man. You know, like make your art because the people who are great artists are going to make it no matter what. And no one will stop them. Um, And you see a lot of young people who are waiting around to be discovered or, you know, when I get my record contract, I'm going on blah, 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 blah. Right. Okay. So that's not how record labels work now. Record labels invest money in assets that will make them more money. So how do you prove to them that you can make them money? Not by sending them an MP3. You make money. And how do you make money? You make art. And find ways to get out there and do it. It's not easy. And sometimes you'll play to an empty room. We all have. Right. Um, well, not me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Why'd you laugh so hard when I said that? Because <laughs> um, we all have. I know. Um, and don't be afraid to suck don't be afraid to make mistakes. Don't be afraid to take chances artistically and also in ways to market your music. Um, build a community if you can or join a community. Find like-minded people. If you're making EDM, there's a lot of people yeah, out there who tons. are paying lots of dough to go to Electric Daisy every year, right? There are fans to be found. Yeah. And you have the internet to find them. But what's important is, is don't rely, don't rely on... Another mistake young people make is they think they need a big social media following to be a successful musician. That's kind of backwards. Social media and the internet are great for continuing relationships with fans. Really, it's really tough to find new fans that way, but you can. So make the music, find a community of people that are interested in the same kind of music you are somehow. That community might be online. But find local places and play shows, right. play live. The, so here's the job. The job is you get in a van and you drive around and you play music every night. Start saving up for the tires, right? Yeah, yeah. Because you're going to need them and then you're going to need the van and then you're going to need an AAA membership because the van will break down. Right. And you're going to need to go to Jiffy Lube and put money in the van. But that's the job is to travel in a van and play music for people. 
think of it that way. Don't think of it as, oh, when do I get to like hop on the jet and do my DJ set in right. Ibiza? Maybe, maybe right. one day, but the, the way they find out about you is you went and made people listen to your music face-to-face in the same room. That doesn't mean that somebody doesn't get discovered on TikTok and blow up or, you know, there are shortcuts, but they also lead to short careers. Yeah. So if you want to do this for 30 or 40 years, make the art and find like-minded people, collaborate. Um, And you'd be surprised how many established artists are willing to reach a handout and pull somebody up with them. Um, that doesn't mean stalk them on Instagram, (laughs) (laughs) but when you have an opportunity or you make an opportunity to talk to them about music, that will help a lot. And, and it, it can be intimidating because it's kind of like, you know, well, there's no, there's no map I think is really what makes it intimidating. Right. No, uh, you kind of, and I mean, everything you're saying sounds like great knowledge and, and it resonates with me and, and it makes sense. But really all that said, the scary part is it, it, it's always in change and, you know. And there's the, no guarantee. Right. And the wisdom of what you're saying is valid, but it's still f- something that's fearful because it's like, man, this is jazz. I don't know what the outcome is going to be. <laughs> you don't. The future is unwritten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but... If you want to be in the right place at the right time, if lightning does strike for you and you do get lucky, and luck plays a big part in it, like, you know, let's not brush that aside. Right. Is if you've done all of the hard work to be ready, you're ready. I think that's correct. You know, and whether opportunity knocks or not, you're ready for it too. And that's, you know, that's, so you do the work now and, and don't wait. Yeah. You need to be ready to step on stage. Yeah. Um, and waiting for things to, I always found in hindsight, I would, I'd be like, well, I can't do that because I don't have all these pieces in place yet. And all it did was suspend me from doing it. Right. Right. Now, so you think that's part of what you're talking about. Right. Too. And that may, that may be true. Yeah. All the pieces aren't in place, yeah. but start putting them yeah, in I place yourself. Yeah. Don't wait for somebody yeah. else to do it for you. And yeah, that's a good way to look at it. That'll right? get you a lot further. It's slow. Yeah. Not, not quicker. It's a slow process. But not taking action is never taking action. Right. You know, um, and it's, it's not an easy thing to hear necessarily as a young person who's really excited and just wants no. to do it and have it <laughs> yeah. handed to you. It's, it takes work. And, and the people, again, who I've worked with who are hugely successful are going to make their art no matter what. Right. So, you know, don't, don't ever hesitate. Exactly. Well, man, there's one other thing. I just want you to take the time to let anyone who's listening know where they can get a hold of you or where, if, if in fact, they, they have an interest. Sure. Like, what, what would be the best place to aim them to? Uh, um, so you can, um, you know, the website is barbersbasement.com. Beautiful. Uh, it's called Barber's Basement because guess what's upstairs? A barbershop. Um, <laughs> you go with the obvious this time. <laughs> well, it's a barbershop that's a front for a speakeasy. It's but... <laughs> a brilliant space, so, man. They, they have these cool laid-in albums all on the flooring from yeah, so throughout I'm, years. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, but... no, I'm in the Lemon Tree facility in Highland Park in Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, but to find me, barbersbasement.com. Have a Facebook page for Barber's Basement as well. Uh, in both cases, I think there's audio samples. You can listen to some of my work. Um, and call me. Very my, cool. My phone. I'm not. I'm not hard to find. <laughs> You're not a wanted man, but you are a wanted man. 
I, 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 you know, and and much like I said, uh, you know, if if a young artist has a chance to to talk to somebody that they admire that's established, there's, you know, my phone. I answer the phone for everybody. Beautiful man, beautiful. Hey man, I thank you so much for this talk. And I, I, again, I hope we get to soon um, connect this way and have another great conversation. Hey, you know where to find me now. Fantastic man. All right, John, thank you. Hey there, this is John. I want to thank everyone for listening to the Mobile Radio Carnival at the CEF.world. I also want to say, hey, thanks, Ed, for being on the show. Hey, guys, thanks again for listening. I think the best way to end this episode of the Mobile Radio Carnival is by putting on the version of Route 66 produced on my behalf by Ed and his production partner, Michael. Here it is, Route 66. Get your kicks.
Get your kids. Get 